Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we will be, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you're going to use the Pew Bible like I am, uh, that is found on page 241. 241, so if you want to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you. Uh, these, uh, this chapter has three stories in it, so we're going to talk about all three of those stories. And I might do a little more telling than I do reading. Uh, but in these stories, we see David's rise. Over the past two weeks, we've seen David's kind of growing up a little bit. The first story where David was anointed by Samuel to become the next king of Israel, he was called Little. And so here we could rightly imagine somebody maybe elementary age, Zach. There he is, Zach H. Stand up, Zach. Are you napping already, man? We just got going. Stand up, Zach size. There we go. Then the next story, you can sit down now. Good job, pay attention. He was looking at his Bible, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing, he really was paying attention. Uh, and the next story, the story we had last week of David and Goliath, he's called a, a young man. And so this kind of literally means somebody of marrying age. Uh, and So we might not consider that Okay, how, do I, how am I going to put this? Levi, stand up. You're not of marrying age. But sort of like teenage age-ish, mid to late teens, it would have been David from last week. This week we see David rising to the top and becoming well-known throughout Israel. So this is going to take, you know, take place over a little bit longer period. He is moving from a young man to a man, to a warrior, to somebody who is worthy of note. Now, imagine, if you will, your King Saul from last week. And, and you have faced Goliath. Goliath has come down and he's, he's uh, this nine foot tall giant and he's, he's spoken these, he's just defied the armies of Israel. He's defied God and all of your men, your mightiest soldiers have all tucked and run. They're hiding, they're cowering in their tents. And Levi, size guy, comes up to Goliath, knocks him out with a stone and chops his head off. Then leads the charge against the Philistine hordes. What do you do with that kid when you're done? You don't let him go back to tend sheep, right? I mean, he's not going back to the flocks. You say, this guy's going someplace, and I want him to be on my side. And so in chapter 18, we run into Saul. Saul uh, invites David, doesn't let him go home, but instead brings him into his own house. He's going to train him. He's going to put him in a position of authority. David is now uh, on the rise. But notice verse 1. Notice verse 1. After they finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan. And soul, again, doesn't just mean that indefinable part of you, but your life itself. So whatever you'd say, the core of your being, we might use that kind of phrase. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him more than his own soul. Loved him more than his own life. Loved him more than his own that indefinable quality that makes Jonathan who he is. He loved David. Now, there's, this is an interesting time to be alive and to be a Christian, especially to be Christians who are really committed to just reading the Bible and letting the Bible speak. Because this text is one of the, the key texts in what we might call the queer theology department of the Christian progressive movement. By that, I mean they read this text and they argue this is a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. Very interesting, uh, very common. I bring this up, it might not be common from this pulpit, but you <laughs> would be common if you were in other places to, to, to hear that kind of, of talk. And what this shows to me is just how obsessed with sex our society has become. 
That, that we assume that the deepest form of relationship that one could have with another person is one that is sexual. And so when we read then this story, if you read this with that in the back of your mind, of course, well, of course, well, they're going to be in some kind of relationship together that would include sexual interaction. But that is, of course, not at all what we see here. We see the, the first biblical bromance. I have a friend, and, and many of you, I, I know Paul and some other people who spend a lot of time with me, have heard his name so much you probably think you know him, my friend Danny. He lives out in Denver. And Danny and I, uh, uh, my soul is knit together with Danny. And we uh, like a lot of the same movies, and so if a movie comes out that we, that we like, uh, that I want to see and that he wants to see, and that he was here, you know, we would go to, the, we'd go to Alamo or whatever. We cannot go to Alamo anymore. Sad day. We would go to the movie theater, and we would watch this movie. Well, we can't do that because he's in Denver and I'm here, and so we, 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 we video chat, and we hit play at the same time. We watch the movie together. Now, you can, you can laugh at me all you want. Just you go right ahead. I don't care. Laura's telling, tell, Ellen and Mark are over to our house, um, and Laura starts telling Ellen about this, and Ellen starts laughing at me, and she starts making fun of me, and I'm like, you can't make fun of me about this. You can't. I love Danny, and that is all there is to it. And I will watch every single movie, every single night of the week with Danny because my soul is knit together with him. But I can tell you this. There's no sexual activity between us. Because you can love people to the core of your being and still have it be something that's pure and not degraded. And we have, as a society, watched everything that is pure and holy and good be dragged through the mud. And one of the things that we as Christians ought to be is people who stand out because our relationships are deep and true and good and pure and not corrupted and not corruptible. And that's what I see here. In fact, I don't just see this in David and Jonathan. I see this in the way that God covenants with us. He sends Jesus, and what does Jesus say? I came not to be served, but to serve. To knit my soul together with you, because God himself desires to have a pure, true, meaningful, soul-knitting-together relationship with each and every one of us. And not only do we see this in the character of God himself, but we see this in the character of the early church. Open your Bible and see the way the church expands in the early pages of the book of Acts. The first stories of the church are this. They're marked by this word koinonia. It's a Greek word, and we like to throw Greek around because it makes us feel fancy. And There's not a lot about us that's fancy, and so we take what we can get. This word means two things. It means fellowship, and it means sharing. And so it means that the Christians were together and they were sharing their time, their space, and their possessions together. In fact, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says this, that all of the believers were of one heart and of one mind. Couldn't we say their souls were knit together there? And of one heart and of one mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but what? They shared everything they had because they had pure, real, true relationships that went down to their toes. It was so true. It was so pure. It was so real. There was a lot of bromance back then, and there should still be today. The church should be a place where people see, looking at us, and marvel, wondering, 
out loud, look how they love one another. By extension, Christian marriage should echo this in some very real ways. In fact, Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, um, he uses the, the, the marriage relationship as an example of the way in which God loves the church. He says, look at how Christ loved us, that he gave up his, his life that he might buy us back. And therefore, in the same way, how should husbands love their wives? You should lay down your life. Her will, not yours. Husbands, her needs, not yours. Her wants, not yours. Her honor, not yours. When did we give up chivalry? Like, when did this die? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind that it died in wider culture. That's, that's, there's nothing there anyway. Why did we let it die amongst us? Why do people look at Christian marriage and it doesn't look different than non-Christian marriage? It is because Christian men have forgotten Jesus. And so, men, I call you to look upon Jesus and to be the example that you see there. Men of valor, men of faith, men that are not willing or able to be bought or sold, for they belong to Christ first and your family second. That would be something to look at in a culture like this. And this is what we see throughout the pages of Scripture, not just in David and Jonathan, but all the way through a true and pure friendship. Remember Jonathan. Jonathan had a, a similar characteristic to David. I think back to Jonathan in chapter 14. Remember they had 60,000 plus troops. Philistines just invaded, like just sanded the seashore. They're swarming the area of Israel. And Saul and his, his men, what are they doing? They're cowering in the fig trees. Like they're hiding out. And what's Jonathan do? Leans over to his, his, uh, his armor bearer, Patsy, and he says, well, let's go check it out. Maybe God will give them into our hands. Really? Maybe God will let you beat 60,000 dudes. That's nuts, right? But there's a characteristic there that is core to Jonathan and core to David, and that begins with the belief that God could do absolutely anything. It doesn't matter what opponent you face. God can knock them down. Do we believe that? Because if you believe that, then core to your, right next to that, that word faith is going to be valor. It's going to be courage. It's going to be the willingness to push forward and to fight and to not give up and to not give in and to not surrender. Now, this characteristic that binds them together and makes them uh, uh, good friends pushes them into the next story. The next story and that is in verses 6 through 16. Look at verse 6 with me. And they're coming home. So they've gone out and they've gone to battle and, and they've, they've defeated the Philistines and, and Saul led the charge. But, but uh, David and Jonathan are there by his side. And, and I mean, they're just, they're just doing awesome. They defeat their enemies. They're coming home. There's a parade. When David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women, they came out to all the cities, and they were singing and they're dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as one, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David ten thousand more. I don't know why they're so deeply voiced back then, but that is hearty Israelite women. Um... 
So you can imagine Saul, and you can imagine this procession. I mean, they have just defeated Goliath. They just fe- defeated the Philistines. I mean, Saul is in his, 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 his regalia. Uh, he, he's fine in his armor, and he's on his white steed, and he's leading this parade. And, you know, his knights, if you want to think of it that way, are behind him, Dave and Jonathan being back there. He's leading, and the, the ladies are coming out to greet their husbands, to greet their sons, to greet just the soldiers, just to see this parade. Of course, they're very excited because they've, They've, they've been freed from the thumb of the Philistines. And so they're singing these songs of praise. And of course, it's great to kill a thousand guys. Well, you know, in the story. It's great for them to have defeated a thousand guys, but how much better to defeat 10,000? And, and the whole point of the parade is so that Saul could receive the accolades, the glory. Like, that's how the parade functions. You sing praise to the king. You don't sing praise to the, 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 the kid who just killed, you know, uh, Goliath and these other guys. And so we read again in verse 8, uh, the Bible exercising um, understatement. And Saul was very angry. I imagine Saul was shaking with rage. I imagine that Saul was so furious. Uh, he was bright red and he was, I, and he was just, I, I, th- what would you even do? It would be so much anger. It says that he was displeased. And he asks this question. They've ascribed to David ten thousands. And me, they've ascribed a thousand. What more can he have but my kingdom? Now, I want you to hear that is petulant, isn't it? I mean, that's just petulant childishness. To be the king doesn't mean you're the greatest soldier. It's not like they said, well, Saul was just taking a nap and David won the whole battle. They've they've brought together a song and and, and Saul should, uh, if he was in his right state of mind, been happy for the success. But don't we find that in our lives? That somebody, you might have had success, but somebody next to you has had a little more success. And that just drives you nuts. Just drives you nuts. And what Saul should have done is been excited, but he couldn't be. And part of that is, is that he hasn't forgotten the words of Samuel. Remember, Samuel told Saul that the kingdom was going to be torn away from his hand. That, that, that Saul would not, would not continue on in leading the people. And so Saul is paranoid and he's looking who's going to take this crown from me and and of course David was no one just a few days ago and all of a sudden they're they're singing his praises is this the guy is this the guy that's going to take the kingdom from me will he take my place and so they make it to the castle they they get all set up it says the next day an evil spirit from god rushed upon saul this is an important spiritual truth that we need to understand if you remember previously after the anointing of david where the spirit of god comes upon david the spirit of god did what with saul it left so saul is now one of two things spiritually he's either a husk with nothing in him at all or he is a place that evil can come and dwell and this is true today. Why spiritual realities are a very important uh, a subject and why they're very important for us to keep our, our eyes fixed upon God that we might be a place for the Spirit to dwell because we do not want anything else to dwell inside of us. And so the words of the Scriptures that talk about quenching the Holy Spirit and being, uh, being concerned and, and careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit are very important words for us today. 
that we need to stay close to God, that the Spirit of God might fill us up. Because what happens when this evil spirit comes upon Saul, it says that he rants and he raves. And David is a, a very clever mag- uh, magician, musician, and uh, he's playing to soothe Saul, but Saul won't have it. This spirit has so corrupted him. Paranoia and hatred and fear has so filled him that he wants to pin David to the wall. So he throws a spear to hit David, and David invades it. He throws another one, and he misses again, hence the stormtroopers <laughs> reference. What's interesting, then, is the next verse. Look at your Bible, verse 12. Verse 12. It says this. So after this whole incident, like, like okay, so Saul is the king, and he's throwing spears at David, and no one tells the king, hey, you can't throw spears at people. I mean, you should, technically. They're under the law of Moses, and the law of Moses doesn't let you throw spears at people, but this is what happens when you have a king. You have an ultimate authority, then there's, there's no longer any questioning. And so he's throwing spears. And what does it say, though, in verse 12? It says, Saul was afraid. Who should be afraid in this story? Who? David, right? I mean, they're throwing, he's throwing spears at David, but, but Saul is afraid. Why is he afraid? He's afraid because the Lord was with uh, him, but had departed from Saul in verse 12 there. That's an important thing to notice. The Lord was with David, but he had departed uh, from Saul. And so Saul makes him a commander. Um, He brings him down and makes him a commander of a thousand, and he sends him out to, to go and, and fight against the Philistines and, and, and do different missions, whatever, whatever it was that Saul would command him to do. Notice verse 14. And so David had success in all he had undertaken, because why? What's it say? The Lord was with him. Isn't that amazing? I, I love this text because I feel like it's something we need to underline over and over again. It, it is, it is if, if we put it this way, it is maybe the central theme of every single story from 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Kings. This entire series is characterized by this phrase that we could propose in, the set, in, in a question, and that is this, is the Lord with you? Because if the Lord is with you, who can be against you? Armies of Philistines can't overtake you. Goliath, the nine-foot-tall giant, can't defeat you. Saul, who is throwing spears at you, is not going to end you. It doesn't matter what mission you get sent on. If the Lord is with you, who can be against you? There's a great passage in Isaiah uh, 54, which says, No weapon formed against us shall, some of you know it, prosper. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. We see this actually several times. All weapons that are formed against us will fall. This particular text says that no tongue that speaks against us will succeed. Why? Because this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me, says God. And that's important. Because it isn't that David is beautiful like Justin Bieber, which I really appreciated. That was hilarious. It isn't just that he's clever in battle. It isn't just that he seems to be really, really good at everything he does. It is because God is with him. And if God is with David, David is successful in every single uh, venture he goes after. God gives him victory. Is the Lord with you? Of course, that's the question, isn't it? Is the Lord with you? 
Because the scriptures say over and over and over again, if we read them carefully, that if you are in Christ, that you are Christ. You are an heir of all the promises of Abraham. You are the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which God has deposited within you so that you would have that, that seal, that knowledge that you will be raised up on the last day, that every tongue, that, 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 that day that every tongue uh, confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is the day of your glory, is the day of your vindication that God will give Give us a place in his kingdom. That all of that is to say God is for you. So if God is for you, who can be against you? I want you to notice what happens next. So we've got verse, um, verse 14. We've already seen this happening. Uh, but notice verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. That is to say, if the Lord is with you, that means that the Lord is sending you into battle. And that means that the souls are going to rise up against you and you are going to face opposition. Do you understand? That if the Lord is with you, he is not just with you because he wants you to be happy, wealthy, comfortable, just kind of chilling and laying back on your couch. He's with you because he wants you to take the battle to the enemy. There's this great passage, and I was just reminded recently uh, of it, uh, where Jesus is talking to Peter. Remember, Peter makes the good confession. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, um, God has revealed this to you, and that this is the rock upon which I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's usually the way we translate it. And it's an interesting way of putting it. It's kind of a weird structure of words. Because when I hear prevail, I think that there is an attack that's coming. Like somebody is coming at me, they're prevailing over me. So there's movement from the, uh, from the object, right, to the subject. And I think that's wrong here because when was the last time a gate attacked you? And that's only if you're really clumsy, right? I mean, that's... Gates don't attack. Gates get attacked. And so what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, well, the gates are going to come smack you in the face. No, he's saying, you are going to go and attack the gates. And the gates will not be successful in repelling your attacks. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord is with you. But if God sends you to fight against the gates of hell, don't expect that hell won't push back. Which is why we need what? Faith. And valor. Faith and valor. That we might push back against the enemies of God. I see the church running. I see us always running, always on the defense, always afraid, always worried, always letting things be corrupted, always standing silent. And I think it's time for us to stand up and to be unafraid and to push back and to speak the truth. This final story. Um, tells us, so we've seen David then rise to prominence militarily. Uh, he is successful in all of his battles. He's, he's <clears throat> becoming well-known amongst the people of Israel. They even made a song uh, about him. And the last one, we have the grossest gift ever. <laughs> this is going to tell us about how David comes in the position of being even married into the royal family. Remember, what was the gift that David was supposed to get for killing Goliath? Does anybody remember from last week? 
Saul's daughter. There's some other things, but Saul's that he was supposed to marry the princess, right? I mean, this is kind of classic story. Like, you kill the dragon, you get the princess, right? I mean, and, and David goes in there, and he, he kills Goliath. Uh, and so in this story, we have the, the, that David, or Saul tries to give him uh, his oldest daughter. And David is a man of humility. Uh, and he says, no, you know, who am I? Who is my family, my father's house? Like, we, we, we do, we shepherd, like, in the little podunk Bethlehem. Like, we're nothing, I, I do not belong inside your family. I find it so fascinating. David has had success upon success upon success. It's not like he hasn't forgotten that he was anointed. I mean, Zach remembers things, right? Yeah? Good. He remembers things. If, if you anointed Zach and you said, you're going to be the king of Israel one day, if we anointed you here and said, you're going to be king of America, do you think you'd remember that? Yeah, that'd probably stick with you. It's not, like, it's not like David doesn't know this. He knows this. And he's defeated Goliath, and he's defeated enemies. He's been a general. He's been in charge of me. He's doing all of these things. And Saul says, hey, marry my daughter, which would make him in line for the throne. It would seem like this is how God's going to do it, doesn't it? I mean, that's second in line. If Jonathan dies, David's next. And yet David says what? No. That's not how I'm going to come into this, if I come into it at all. I'm not worthy of this position. Humility in the midst of success. Wouldn't that be nice to see today? So uh, he resists this, and and, uh, uh, Saul's daughter gets married off to somebody else. But Saul comes to find out that his youngest daughter, Michal, is in love with David because he's, we already saw, he's a handsome dude, right? You get lost in those baby blues. And so there he is, and she is uh, smitten, and Saul finds out about this, and this pleases Saul, not because he wants Michal to be happy, (laughs) <laughs> Who'd want their daughter to be happy? Ridiculous. Not that he really likes David and is like, well, I could put the, this would put him in a position where he could be you know, trusted and we could build a relationship and this would be a good thing. No, it's because they would put him in a position where he could more easily get David killed. And this is what, uh, this is what his, his plot is, what his plan is. David is initially resistant to this, and so Saul gets his other, uh, his other friends, the other people part of the court to say, hey, listen, Saul wants you to, to marry his daughter. Why are you going to say no? Why are you going to make this? Like, Come on, you can do this. And so Saul says, well, let's make a bride price. In those days, uh, it, this is, again, similar to killing the dragon. You get, you get the girl. You could often give a large sum of money, and you could be your dowry. You'd be buying the bride, as it were recompensing the father for losing the daughter. And Saul says, well, let's do this. Let's set a bride price. A hundred Philistine foreskins. If you don't know what that is, go home and ask your parents. A hundred Philistine foreskins, which is just... I, I don't have anything to say about that. Let's just... I just I, and David says, that's a great plan. I would have negotiated. I mean, that's just me. I would have negotiated. <laughs> and so he goes out. He rises up. The text says, he, verse 27, David arose along with his men. Because, because listen, if you're going to go and... <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know if I can do it. If you're going to go kill and circumcise 100 Philistines, at least one of them might get you first. Right? That's Saul's idea here. Okay, so he, so uh, they go. He goes in verse twenty-seven. David arose. He went along with his men, and he killed two hundred Philistines, and he brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king. 
Isn't that romantic? I mean, that's the most romantic story I've ever heard. Here we are, baby. Look at what I have done for you. And who has to count those out? Like, there's so many... There's so many things that are happening here that are just... Tell me, the Bible is a weird thing. Or at least we could say the people are very strange. David accomplishes every task set before him, even the grossest one you could think of. David then marries, of course, the daughters given in marriage, and this illustrates to us uh, David's uh, rise to a position of prominence. Verse 30, the last verse of the chapter says this. The commanders of the Philistines come out, came out to battle, and as often as they came out, uh, David had more success than all of the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. These stories then show us not just the youth of David as he grows up, but they expand and push on to David's growing in prominence amongst the people to the point of which he is now attached directly to the royal family. And all of this is sort of interesting if you keep in the back of your mind that all all the while David is going to be king. David's been promised. That's been the prophecy. It's been laid down. God's going to accomplish this. And we see all of these different ways in which it might happen, and yet we don't yet know how it will happen. Will, he, will, will Saul die and Jonathan die? Will David assassinate them? Will, will there be some kind of plot? To, like, what's going to happen is sort of just wrestling with this entire text. And I love these stories. I think they're so wonderful and rich and colorful and bizarre and fun to tell around a campfire. Imagine, again, telling these around a campfire to a bunch of 10-year-olds. Right? Everybody's laughing. That is a crazy story. But the core of all the stories are the same, isn't it? What's the core of all the story? The core of all of these stories, from all of the faithfulness, both uh, from Samuel um, to the early days of Saul, uh, to uh, the day where Jonathan leads in the defeat of the enemies of Israel, to David here in this moment, All of it comes down to this. It comes down to faith, and it comes down to valor. It comes down to the fact that if you take up arms against the gates of hell, hell is going to push back against you. And so I don't know what you might be wrestling with here today. Some of us are trying to get our lives straightened out. In fact, I think probably all of us in some way are trying to get our lives straightened out. And if you've ever tried to get your life straightened out, set upon the right path, you found out it is a whole lot easier to just not, right? It is a whole lot easier to just sit back and let the spirit of the world fill you up and just kind of let things go. But if you want the Spirit of God to come upon you, if you want to turn your life over to Him, if you want to have those core traits of your heart, of your will, of your mind to be faith and to be valor because you want to take on the gates of hell, the road will be difficult. It will be hard. You will face nothing harder than trying to get your life directed toward Jesus. And you will find nothing harder than staying the course. Because everything that is worth doing is hard. It's difficult. 
And what we see in these stories, though, over and over again and again and again, that it isn't actually David's military prowess. It isn't David's cleverness. It isn't his good looks. It isn't his ability to play well. It isn't his ability to defeat his enemy. It is God's work in him, God's blessing on his life, God's spirit in him that allows him to defeat every single person, giant army that comes up against him. Which tells us something wonderful, I think. It tells us that faith pushes us forward and all we are called to do is be faithful to God and God will take care of the rest. That the one who really defeats the Goliaths and the Philistines of our lives is the power of the living God. And I invite you to grab a hold of that power to let it fill you, move you, drive you to victory in all of the areas of your life. If you need prayer, our elders will be down front. And I want to encourage you, if you just need prayer because you are struggling with something, please, please come down front and let the elders pray with you. You are not in this alone. We want to be together in this battle. If you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, please come down front and we'll talk with you about it. We'll grow with you in this. But especially I want to make the call out, if you need prayer today, uh, to be down here so that they can pray with you. God is with you. Who can be against you? Amen? Let's stand as we sing this song.